This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. Hello, I'm your host, Rebecca Larson. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you've come back for more, thank you and welcome back. If you're new to the show, you might know me from my website, TudorsDynasty.com, or maybe you heard of me from History Lair. Or you just know that I'm a Thomas Seymour historian and I can always find an excuse to talk about him, to the chagrin of some and joy of others. We have another fantastic episode for you today. The unintended theme for this episode is scandals. First, I chat with speaker, writer, and podcast host Carol Ann Lloyd about Elizabeth's women and how many of them married in secret. Then historian Gareth Russell returns for Ask the Expert with Stephanie, where she asks him the questions you submitted about Queen Catherine Howard, fifth wife of Henry VIII. I mean, when it comes to scandalous wives, she's the cream of the crop. Lastly, on A Brief History, one of the most scandalous members of Elizabethan court. Can you guess? Yep, Robert Dudley. But before we get started, a quick shout out to my newest patrons, Daniela J, Marie M, Presley H, Dalton K, Jenny B, and Carmen R. Thank you so much, you guys, for becoming patrons, and thank you to the existing ones as well. Because you are wonderful patrons, you get exclusive access to things like my tutor course, um, audio content from the show, and now the first three chapters of my not-yet-published historical novel on Thomas Seymour. If you'd like to become a patron, go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tutors Dynasty, and then just click Become a Patron to pick some options. So I would say it's fair to say that people have always been attracted to the Tudors because of the scandals that surrounded them. Now, I've said it before, executing two of your six wives is a great way to go down in history as a terrible husband. My guest today is the host of British History, Royals, Rebels, and Romantics, Carol Ann Lloyd. Carol Ann, welcome to the show. Thank you. It is so great to be here. Today, you and I are going to go back to my roots and to a subject that you actually recently covered on your podcast. Drum roll, please. Drum roll, please. <laughs> scandals, really, is what it yes. comes down to. Yes. And not just any scandals, the ones that surrounded Elizabeth's women marrying in secrets. Yes. This it's it's quite interesting if you look at the reign of Elizabeth I and as the virgin queen, of course, she positioned herself as sort of the paragon of virtue and made herself into almost a second virgin for people to revere and almost worship. Now that Catholicism was gone and the Virgin Mary was gone, now we have the Virgin Queen. And as part of that, she seemed to have some attitude problems about marriage. And that was especially true for the women who served her. Her ladies-in-waiting were expected to be so devoted to her in the same way that she considered herself as queen married to the country. She almost expected her ladies to be married to her. And that devoted to her servants. And so when a um, gentleman entered the picture, 
it was often quite scandalous. You know, the first thing I thought of was when Henry VIII ascended the throne, the biggest wedding scandal that comes to mind for me at the time was his sister Mary when um, she was widowed from Louis Twelfth of France and she secretly wed Charles Brandon. That was a scandal. Right. It was. And there are some reports that indicated, and I don't know if this is true, I have not really been able to suss this out for sure, but some people seem to think that Mary and her brother, King of England, I don't know, but he did seem quite fond of her, that they made a deal that she would go marry the very elderly King of France. She would allow herself to be used as a pawn in that way. But then next time she got to choose her husband. And uh, apparently before she gave Henry a chance to renege, if that was the case, before they even left France, she and Charles made it happen. And so it's a pretty interesting (laughs) thing to think about. Um, Yeah, the scandal behind that. And they really had to beg forgiveness from the king. I think there are some good arguments made um, that go along, you know, with the story that you just said that for appearance sake, Henry then fined them all this money that they were going to have to pay back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then it just never seemed to happen. Charles Brandon was one of the few people that Henry really seemed to consider a true friend. And the notion that he would completely betray not only his king, but his good, good friend and expect complete forgiveness if there was no understanding ahead of time and that his favorite sister would just completely betray him. I don't know. I think there there is something to be said for an under-the-table agreement ahead of time, a big show of anger on Henry's part, but they were both back at court pretty quickly. And Brandon, even after Mary sadly died pretty young, but Brandon remained Henry's true friend and at his side until he died. And Henry gave Charles Brandon a huge funeral and was quite devastated by his death. So that seems to be a friendship that lasted. And I'm not sure Henry was the forgiving sort. So if they, if he had truly felt betrayed, I'm not sure he would have been that forgiving. Mm, See, now you led me to a different question. Now I'm wondering if Elizabeth (laughs) ever had one of those friendships. Well, I think there were a couple of people in her life that Elizabeth really cherished and really loved. And I think one was Kat Ashley and another was Blanche Perry. And both of them, both of those women served her for years and were with her during very difficult times. She writes a letter to Edward Seymour Seymour when he's Lord Protector, um, sort of begging that Kat be set free from the tower and talks about how she owes her bringers up, that's the term she used, even more in some ways than her parents, because even though her parents gave her life, it was her bringers up who dedicated their lives to her. And and she felt that way about Kat Ashley. She felt that way certainly about Blanche Perry, and in some cases even more with Blanche Perry, because Blanche never married. She spent her entire life serving Elizabeth, didn't have a husband, didn't have a family, didn't have anything but Elizabeth. And so those were a couple of people that Elizabeth really did seem to trust in that way. And another possible person 
is Catherine Carey, Elizabeth's cousin or possibly, depending on when you date, Henry VIII's relationship with Mary Boleyn. So this is Mary Boleyn's daughter. And there are some scholars who feel that Catherine, the oldest child of Mary Boleyn, was possibly Henry VIII's daughter. So perhaps she and Elizabeth were half-sisters, or perhaps they were cousins. But in any case, Elizabeth did reach out to and um, form relationships with many of her Boleyn relatives, and Catherine Carey was one of the people she was closest to. And we do have some letters between Elizabeth and Catherine during the reign of Mary I, when Catholicism was being restored so firmly, let's say, to England. Catherine and her husband, um, Sir Francis Knowles, fled to the continent, took some of their children. They just felt like um, they were not safe in Catholic England. And there's a lovely letter. You know, there's a series of letters between Elizabeth and Catherine um, showing genuine affection. And she really missed her when she was going to be gone and was so glad when she came back. And she was made chief lady of the bedchamber as soon as Elizabeth became queen. And so, yes, I think there are a few women like that that Elizabeth did really trust and really cherish as friends, and she outlived them all. And I think one of the things we see sort of at the end of her life, of Elizabeth's life, when we read about how she is so desperate to maintain the appearance of youth and surround herself with these young women. And I think she is really searching for that kind of relationship again and is never able to find it again. She feels quite betrayed by some of the women who are around her at the end of her life. And so I think she's just never quite able to get that back, that relationship she had with those other women whom she outlived. So she she lost them, and it was um, quite sad for her, I think, at the end. I think she was pretty lonely. Let's talk a little bit about Catherine Carey a little more when it comes to how Elizabeth treated her, because if she really felt this kinship with her or this close relationship with her, why on earth would she not allow her husband to come see her or allow her to see her husband when he was sick? Well, you know, that's an excellent question because most of us think if you really, really care about somebody, you want what's best for them, not necessarily what's best for you. It was quite true with Elizabeth that she could both love you dearly as a friend and cousin and also expect you to sacrifice everything else in your life to serve her. I don't. <laughs> yeah. So Good friend. I, yeah, this is, this is maybe not the kind of friend you want, but I wonder, I just wonder if Elizabeth who did sacrifice what she might have truly wanted or whom she might have truly wanted to be queen, to, uh, keep the country on the track that she really believed it should be on, to not allow any foreign interference, to not mess with the carefully maintained any little shift could cause chaos structure of court and the courtiers by marrying one of them. 
So she gave up a lot for her position, and she seemed to expect that kind of sacrifice. And in the case of Catherine Carey, she was very, very fond of both Catherine and her husband. And Catherine was happily married to Sir Francis Knowles, and they had many children. And so Catherine would leave court just at the very, very end of her pregnancy, and Elizabeth would expect her to rush back to court, not to spend any time with a new baby or with her children, to come right back to court. And toward the end of Catherine's life, Francis had been sent to, quote, deal with Mary Queen of Scots, because Elizabeth really trusted Francis. She did not believe that he would be captivated by Mary Queen of Scots in the way that other men had been. And she was right. He wasn't. But he wanted to come back because Catherine had become ill and he knew she was ill and he wanted to come back and be with her. And he wrote these letters where he was begging Elizabeth. And then he'd write to Cecil and sort of almost chastise Cecil and say, you've got to let me come home and be with my wife. And Elizabeth refused. She wouldn't let Francis go visit him. And so it turned out that Catherine died in January of 1569 at Hampton Court. Her husband was not at her side. And Elizabeth was reportedly devastated by this. But it was quite a bit her fault that that this woman that she said she loved had died without seeing her husband again. And it was a very tragic ending to what had been a wonderful marriage, a very happy marriage, which isn't always true in any day. And certainly in Tudor times wasn't always true, but this had been a very happy marriage between two people who were devoted to each other. And so for them not to be together at the end was a bitter blow to the family and was does not reflect well on the way Elizabeth treated those whom she cared about or claimed to care about, and I think did care about, but she didn't really ever sacrifice of herself for them. And this is the reason why I always have such a bad taste in my mouth when it comes to Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I am curious, Carol Ann, which of the secret weddings that occurred at Elizabeth's court is your favorite. Well, you know, there were a few that were quite exciting, but I would have to say that sort of the, the favorite, just because it reaches out into so many other areas. And I just wonder about it. You know, the things I love best are the things that make me wonder. Catherine's daughter, Latisse, who was, of course, also related to Elizabeth and had been married to Walter Devereux for years and had been at court and had served Elizabeth, had a relationship uh, as we get into the 1570s and the end of the 1570s. It turns out that she has a relationship with Elizabeth's beloved Robert Dudley. And there's a flirtation early and Elizabeth becomes very angry and and it stops. Latisse is still married then. That may have been just an attempt by Dudley to make Elizabeth mm, a little jealous because he flirts with Latisse in front of her. But Latisse is married at that time and that came to nothing. But later um, they did become lovers. And in fact, in 1568, I'm sorry, 1578, 1578, they were married in secret. 
And when Elizabeth found out, now remember the first part of Elizabeth's reign, Robert Dudley had been married to Amy Robsart and Amy was just sort of left in the countryside until she mysteriously died. Speaking of scandals, but Elizabeth always sort of considered Robert Dudley to be hers, her sweet Robin. And at this point now, he has married someone else, has not told her about it, has in fact, by omission, lied about it. And when Elizabeth finds out, she just becomes incandescent with rage. And there's a report that when she found out in 1579, she shouted at Latisse, as but one sun lightens the earth, I will have but one queen of England. And then, according to this rumor, boxes Latisse's ears and banishes her from court. And uh, Latisse is quite unrepentant. And that's what I've noticed with a few of the ladies who have served Elizabeth. When it's all found out, the husbands, and this is true of Dudley, it's also true later of Walter Raleigh, the husbands beg and beg for forgiveness from Elizabeth. They must serve her. She must forgive them. She must let them back in her presence. But the women sort of think, okay, then, and seem to be perfectly fine um, being away from her. And Latisse outlives Elizabeth and lives for years. In fact, she lives to be age 91, which is unheard of. And she lives until 1634. So she's seen so much happen. And her epitaph says she was content to quit her favor meaning Elizabeth, for her favorite, meaning Dudley. So she was willing to give up favor with the queen for true love. And I just think that's such an exciting um, relationship, such an amazing betrayal. But here's what it makes me wonder. And this is because Latisse is Catherine Carey's daughter, and Latisse has seen her mother literally work herself to death for the queen. Was there ever any part in Latisse's early relationship with Robert Dudley where she thought, oh, I'll show you? I don't know. I've seen nothing ever to, to, to back that up. That is purely me. But I can't help but wonder if as, as convoluted and as intertwined as these relationships are, if there might be a bit of leftover resentment that travels from one relationship to the next or from one generation to the next, and if this might have played any role in Latisse's relationship with Robert Dudley. So that's my big wonder about that one. The one thing that strikes me the most about all of this is that Elizabeth really craved the attention of men. Yes, that she is. Had, she had daddy issues. That is so true. And what I what what I think is interesting with Elizabeth is that she played the men at court the way her mother had. Now, of course, Elizabeth was not taught anything by her mother. Elizabeth died 
I'm sorry, Anne Boleyn died when Elizabeth was less than three years old. So it's not like Anne Boleyn coached her in the games of courtly love. But we do know that Anne Boleyn's upbringing in the court of Margaret of Austria really prepared her in a very continental way with this notion of courtly love. And so that's one of the things that made Anne Boleyn stand out when she came to England and was in the English court. She was so different from the English women and she had this sophisticated sense about her and this sophisticated way interacting in particular with the men around her. And she played them off each other. Now, Anne Boleyn overplayed her hand with Henry Norris at the end there. And we won't go into that, but I do think there's an element of that. I don't know if it's inherited. I don't know, but Elizabeth does sort of expect the same level of courtly love and adoration that her mother generated among the men of the court. And there are Elizabeth, it's it's as if Elizabeth early in her reign has such a tight hold on the throne that the two early secret marriages, um, when Catherine Gray and her sister Mary Gray, who are heirs to the throne in the succession, both of them marry without permission. It's as if Elizabeth feels like her hold on the throne is being threatened. Later in her reign, and I don't know if she feels any more secure on the throne, but it's particularly, and maybe it's because she's getting older and she's not receiving all these marriage proposals anymore, but it's as if she wants the men, she wants to have a hold on their hearts in a way that, no, she's not going to marry Robert Dudley, but that doesn't mean he's allowed to marry somebody else. And then later, when Walter Raleigh, the dashing Walter Raleigh, is one of her favorites, and he has the audacity to marry one of her ladies, and Bess Throckmorton has the audacity to fall in love with and marry him, that again just throws Elizabeth because she expects to be the center of attention all the time and the ideal woman for all the men at her court. And so she just can't handle it when a a, a favorite marries and especially marries one of her women. It's just the ultimate betrayal. I, I don't even know what to say. (laughs) I feel feel so terrible for these couples because it seems like they must have really loved each other if they were to go off and get married in secret. Obviously, they knew what they were getting into when they were um, planning this. Yes, yes. I think I think they must have known. It, it was sort of a pattern. Now, there were... Um, there were different responses. Again, one thing I just think is very interesting, and I guess I guess I do feel sympathy for the couples... But when you read some of the inflated, overstated expressions of love for the queen that are coming from, for example, Robert Dudley or, for example, um, Sir Walter Raleigh, they just seem so overstated. And you see these women sort of sitting back thinking, nope, I'm not going to apologize again. I think it's as if they are taking some control. So. 
I do think the women in both cases, and I certainly think there's every reason to believe that Latisse very much loved Robert Dudley. She was with him at his death. And Bess Throckmorton seemed to love Sir Walter Raleigh to excess. And there's that whole legend that she carried his head around. Um, I mean, it just is a little um, strange, but they got in some ways what they wanted. And so that's good. And I know um, you and I don't necessarily feel the same way about Elizabeth, but I do feel sympathy for her, especially as her reign goes on, as her true friends are dying. Now, she hasn't treated them all that well, but her true friends are dying and she's surrounded by these younger, much more beautiful women who are taking her admirers away and she is left more and more alone. And I think that is terrifying for her. And so, of course, when we're afraid, we become the very worst versions of ourselves. And I think she definitely does that in the way that she responds to these people who are willing to serve her, who are willing to give up an awful lot for her, but are not willing to give up the chance for love and marriage and family if that's what they want. And she's never able to really accept that. She she loved Robert Dudley so much. She cared for him. I think everybody will agree on that statement. Yes. And, and yet she was willing to ship him off to marry the Queen of Scots. Yes. Well, you may not be too surprised to hear that I have a theory about that, too. <laughs> oh, I'm intrigued. Okay. So I'm not sure she ever really intended for Mary Queen of Scots to marry Dudley. Uh, Mary Queen of Scots had been very dismissive of Dudley and of course of Elizabeth in claiming the throne and their relationship and had made that comment after Amy died, oh, um, she's going to marry her horse master having killed his wife to make room for her kind of thing. So I think that was sort of an empty gesture but I think it primed the pump. And I wonder, because of course, the person Mary Queen of Scots does marry, Henry Lord Darnley, is also, I mean, that's a whole scandal as well. But I, Elizabeth knew Darnley. She knew Margaret Douglas. She knew Henry Lord Darnley. She knew them quite well. And when she lets Darnley go to Scotland, knowing he's very good looking, he's very dashing, but he's just barely underneath the surface, kind of a terrible person. I wonder if if she was not that surprised when Mary jumped and married Darnley um, instead of Dudley. And if that would just prove to Elizabeth that Mary was not able to find true the true value, which was Robert Dudley, and fell for the dashing, good-looking Henry Lord Darnley. That's my thought. That's interesting. I uh, it's a way I haven't really thought about it before because the stories that I've always heard had to do more with um, Elizabeth sending him there basically to be her eyes. But I wonder if. Maybe it was a ploy um, to make an excuse to make him Earl of Leicester. Oh, that could be too. That's a really good point. Yes, because she did. That was exactly when she did that. That's a, that's a, yeah, that's right. That's right. To ennoble him to that level. 
Right. So she was like, oh, no, no, I'm going to send him off to, to wet the uh-huh. uh-huh. shots. Uh-huh. <laughs> and maybe that, you know, that may have made him think, oh, maybe she is going to marry me. Now that she's made me right. the Earl of Leicester, now she is going to marry me. And then when she still refused, <laughs> that was it. <laughs> he was going to find somebody else. Well, you can't blame him really yes. at that point. He really, he really did. And that whole Kenilworth thing when he was trying to get her to marry him and Christmas. I mean, he really certainly could not have asked more times in more dramatic, more overstated, wonderful, all in, I'm so all in kinds of ways. And she just probably, I I, I mean, I wonder if really early on she meant it, you know, in her first speech to parliament when she said, well, yes, I'll get married if the Lord tells me to, but I'd really like it if the stone said there was a queen who reigned for such and such in time and lived and died a virgin. She really seemed pretty committed to that, despite um, all of the efforts and offers of mm-hmm. Dudley. So She was smart. I'll give her that. Yeah. Well, and certainly she did not have, now she did have, you know, something like the Catherine Carey um, marriage that was with Francis Knowles that was lovely, but there were very few marriages in Elizabeth's immediate life that gave her an idea that marriage was a good thing. And really at that time, as the regnant queen, everyone whether she was queen or not, everyone still assumed that the man would be the person really making the decisions and really the important person in the relationship. And she would have lost a level of autonomy and an ability to reign if she had married. So she weighed that against not providing an heir and decided to reign in her reign to really rule and reign and then not have an heir. And of course, that's a problem in and of itself, but she would have lost a sense of control of her kingdom had she married anybody, and especially if she had married um, a foreign prince who could have come in and done to England what Philip of Spain attempted to do to England while he was married to Mary I. So there were reasons for her decision. And speaking of heirs, you briefly mentioned Catherine Gray a little bit earlier. Yeah. And she, I'm fascinated with Lady Jane Gray. I'll be honest, I don't know a whole lot about Catherine or Mary Gray, but the secret wedding between Catherine Gray and Edward Seymour and their time in the tower, I would love for you to share that story with our listeners. Well, that happened early in Elizabeth's reign. And what's quite interesting about the Gray sisters, of course, Lady Jane Gray had been part of an attempt, and I, I by no means am implying that she was behind the attempt, but she was part of an t- attempt to put her on the throne after Edward VI died to prevent the very Catholic Mary I taking the throne. Now, it didn't work, and Mary took the throne and really did try to be merciful to Lady Jane Grey and her family and Guilford Dudley, Lady Jane Grey's husband, and some of his family. 
But eventually, both Lady Jane Grey and Guilford Dudley were executed. But Jane Grey had two sisters, Catherine and Mary. And Mary Tudor, of course, everybody's practically called the same thing, so we'll use last names. Mary Tudor, Queen of England, brought Mary Grey and Catherine Grey to court and treated them very, very kindly. In fact, it appeared that Mary, Queen Mary, was considering Catherine Grey, who was the oldest of the two remaining sisters, to be the heir instead of Elizabeth, Mary's own half-sister. And so even though Catherine was very committed to reform and what we call Protestant, of course, it doesn't relate to the Protestant church today, but at that time it was called Protestant, um, Mary Tudor, Queen Mary, still seemed to prefer, strongly prefer Catherine to Elizabeth as heir. So Elizabeth's shackles might have been up just a little bit in terms of these gray sisters, And so when Elizabeth took the throne, she brought them again to court. She was making efforts to involve them, and she was possibly looking to Catherine to be her heir as well. But then Catherine did the ultimate betrayal, which this was the first ultimate betrayal, only two years after Elizabeth came to the throne. She married Edward Seymour, the Earl of Hertford, in 1560 in a secret ceremony and didn't tell the queen. And um, Elizabeth sent Seymour on a grand tour, not knowing he was married. And so he's off in Europe and he gives his wife a document. And he says, just in case I die, I want you to have this. This proves we're married so that you can inherit my property. But Catherine Gray lost the document. Now, that's sort of careless, but whatever. Um, And then they only had one witness at their wedding, and that witness died. So pretty soon, when Catherine is pregnant and finally has to admit that she's pregnant and she's married someone without the queen's permission, which is doubly problematic in her case because she is in the line of succession. So in the first place, she's in Elizabeth's court, and that means you're not supposed to get married. But in the second place, Anyone in the line of succession cannot marry without the monarch's permission. That's actually still the case. So she's doubly sort of damned for this decision. And interestingly, she turns to Bess of Hardwick first and says, you've got to help me with the queen. Bess of Hardwick is horrified to be involved and shoves her out. Then she runs to Robert Dudley, the queen's best friend, and says, you've got to help me with the queen. And here she is heavily pregnant. She's in Dudley's chamber. And he's like, oh, man, if somebody walks in, I'm going to be in so much trouble. But Dudley does go to Elizabeth and sort of break the news to her. And Elizabeth is furious and sends Catherine immediately to the tower and calls Seymour home and sends him to the tower. Catherine gives birth to a son, which is absolutely the worst thing you could do if Elizabeth is in her paranoid state, worried about, is she the legitimate queen? Is she able to produce an heir? Oh, no, this woman just produced a male heir and was so angry. And then somehow in the years that Catherine and Seymour are both in the tower, Catherine has another son, so they were allowed to see each other, I guess, and they weren't supposed to. But at that point, Elizabeth is so angry, she annuls the marriage. And she's able to do so because there is no proof the two of them were married. There's no documentation and there are no living witnesses. And so she is able to have the marriage annulled and those two boys to be declared illegitimate. 
And uh, and yet she has Catherine moved away from the tower now, so she seems to be able to find her husband in the tower and and does not allow them to see each other anymore. And at only age 27, Catherine Gray dies. So she's a very young woman. She's taken away from her husband and her two sons. And this really is not so much, I mean, Elizabeth didn't have any interest in the man in this case, but her her obsession at this point was proving that she was the one who should be on the throne. And she was worried because she felt Catherine Gray married to Seymour, having a son represented a real threat to her reign. So you would think that Sister Mary, younger Sister Mary, having seen all of this, would not make the same mistake. But Mary, I don't know if you consider it a mistake or not, but Mary sort of follows the same path. And in 1565, marries a man named Thomas Keyes, Now, she did have several witnesses, so she'd be able to prove her marriage really took place. But one of the um, sort of reasons her marriage was much, much commented on was Mary Gray had possibly scoliosis or some sort of illness. So she's described as being curved or hunched over. She was very short. And Thomas Keyes was more than six feet tall. So he was the tallest man at court. So they made this really oddly matched couple visually. And of course, Tudor court, lots of gossip that was commented on. And that's one of the ways, all that comment about that is one of the ways that the queen found out. And so She uh, had them arrested. She sent Mary to house arrest at Checkers and sent Keys to the fleet prison um, that same year. And they were not able, as her sister had been, to work out ways to see each other and find each other while in prison. They were sent to different places. And, um, you know, again, this marriage was disrupted because Elizabeth felt that anyone who might be considered a threat to the throne, who married and had children, then became a a huge threat to her hold on the throne of England. And so both the Gray sisters um, died alone. Mary Gray actually lived for quite a bit of time. Seven years after her house arrest, Elizabeth said, okay, you don't have to be under house arrest anymore. Keys has died. Don't get married to anybody else. And she did not. And eventually she did return to court in a limited way um, in 1577. So she did make some peace with the queen a little bit at the end, but it was certainly not something that Elizabeth was willing to um, turn a blind eye to or, or admit if someone in the succession married without her permission. Thank you so much for chatting with us about these fun secret weddings. Yes, I know. (laughs) Secret (laughs) weddings, still such a scandal. Well, if you're familiar, we've reached the part of the show called If I Made You Choose. Ah, okay. Okay, so what I'm going to ask you to do is to choose between two historical characters I want you, I'll give you the names, you give me an answer, and then just give me a brief reason why. Okay. All right. The first one, Henry VIII or Elizabeth I? Elizabeth I. I just think women in power are the bomb. Uh, The next one is Thomas Woolsey or Thomas Cromwell? Thomas Cromwell. I, I just find him fascinating 
And I, I feel like there's just so much more to him going on behind the stern face. This one should be fun to see who you choose. All right. Mary Boleyn or Catherine Carey? Oh, I think Catherine Carey. I feel like she's in that bridge position where her mother's a Boleyn and her cousin's the queen. And I feel like she's just connected to the whole reign practically because she's got those two generations going on. I think she's fascinating. All right. This one should be fun. Are you team Catherine of Aragon or team Anne Boleyn? Definitely Anne Boleyn. She's the first historic character I fell in love with, and I am loyal to her to the end. Well, and my favorite one is the last one here, Thomas Seymour or Edward Seymour? Definitely Thomas. Definitely Thomas. I think he had a heart, and I'm not sure Edward did. (laughs) I guess that's not fair to Edward, but I think Edward was a pretty cold, calculating guy. And I think Thomas acted um, impulsively and um, maybe made mistakes, but made him just out of an authentic position and wasn't scheming like that. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This was great fun. Can you tell everybody where they can find you? Maybe where they can listen to your podcast, your social media website. Thank you so much. I would love to. So I, you can find me at, at Shake Up History on Instagram and Twitter, carolannloyd.com. My podcast is there, but also you can just um, on Apple or Spotify or anywhere you listen. It's British History, Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. And I would love it if you would let me know what you think. I just love to hear from people. And now, Ask the Expert. Our guest on Ask the Expert today is historian and author Gareth Russell. Gareth wrote a fantastic biography on the life of Catherine Howard called Young and Damned and Fair. And it's this ill-fated queen that we'll be answering your questions about today. And with that, I turn it over to Stephanie. Welcome, Gareth. Hi, thanks so much for having me, Stephanie. This is exciting. Always good to talk about Catherine. So our first question, the thing that people know most about Catherine is that she was executed. But one thing that we are not quite sure of is when she was born. Mm -hmm. So Royalty History Geeks on Twitter asks, when was Catherine Howard born? Uh, Great question. Um, uh, uh, Twofold. The reason why it's a good question, uh, aside from the actual, uh, you know, importance to figure out when she was born um, is because we're coming at really at the tail end of a pretty sustained time in how our histories were written, where the most popular date for her birth was 1525, which would have made her about 14 or 15 when she married the king uh, and potentially 16 um, or 17 at the oldest when she was executed. And it's become clear that she was, in fact, born quite a bit earlier than that. And that, of course, changes a lot about, um, you know, the, the arc of her life. But I went in uh, starting the biography. Um, the research I'd done previously, Stephanie, I did my master's dissertation, my postgrad um, on her household. And so actually debating the date of birth was not really relevant for that paper. And so for me, um, when I started the biography, that was one of the, the first big mysteries that I went and looked at. 
And it became really clear to me that the year 1522 is by far and away the most likely. 1521 is possible, 1523 a squeeze is possible. And the reason for that is, um, firstly, there is um, a fairly substantial amount of evidence from family wills that actually places her a little bit earlier um, from her grandparents, Sir John Lee and Lady Isabel um, Lee, who was, whose maiden name was Worsley. But also uh, there are fairly, uh, fairly specific comments from the French ambassador that she was about 18 in 1539 or 1540. And de the ambassador, knew her. He actually knew her quite well. They'd spent a, a decent amount of time together on long hunting weekends. And so for him to have mistaken, you know, for him to say that she was, she'd been 18 a year or so earlier, when in fact she'd been 14 is just not credible. And also I went digging uh, to find the, the dates of birth for all the other young aristocratic girls from similar backgrounds who made their debut as maids of honour in the Queen's household at the same time as Catherine. And without fail, they were all born um, around 1522, 1523. So to me, her being either substantially older or substantially younger than that, when coupled with the circumstantial evidence, uh, is just impossible. So, So she was probably born, she was almost certainly born in 1522, making her about 18 at the time of her marriage and about 20 at the time of her execution. Thank you. So moving on to D. Withers from mm-hmm. Twitter. He also brings up something that we haven't heard about much um, in regards to the pictures of her. Some say that the pictures that we see are actually of Mary Boleyn. Do you happen to know which ones are actually legit and really are Catherine Howard? No. <laughs> um, Excellent. <laughs> I know which ones aren't. Um, you know, I, I would bet, <laughs> I'd bet a limb, uh, I'd bet, um, I was going to say I'd bet my dog, but I love him too much. I, the, the long, the long portrait by Holbein of the woman in the navy dress with the white French hood that's, um, often described as her definitely is not her. But I think, you know, the current attitude of the royal collection who own the famous miniature of her, um, it's sort of in the gold dress and the, and the three quarter profile and the Duke of Buccleuch who owns the other copy. They think it might be her. Um, I think that's probable. It's really difficult, um, to, to definitively say any of them are her. And part of the reason for that is after 1542, if any of the portraits of her survived, and that's a big if, um, no member of her family was going to want to stress the fact that they still had a portrait of her. So um, there's a lot of you know speculation are some of the portraits, um, Mary, uh, Margaret Douglas, um, a Boleyn, a Rochford, you know, there, there are multiple. Mary Tudor has been suggested as a candidate for some of the others, uh, or the Duchess of Richmond. There's a lot of speculation. So no, I can't say which ones are definitely her, but I am fairly confident in the ones that we can rule out. Uh, so switching gears a little bit now to her affair with Thomas Culpepper, Teresa yeah. G from Twitter would like to know, do we have any idea how or why Catherine would have thought that an affair with Thomas Culpepper could have turned out to be okay. Or is it fair to assume that, you know, she thought the king would just die anyway pretty quickly thereafter, so it would be all right? That is such a 
good question from Teresa, actually. Um, Teresa, thank you um, for your, your Twitter question, because that is a really astute point that I try to discuss in the book that I don't think people give her enough credit for, which is the affair with Thomas really seems to gather pace after it actually it's Holy Week and the, 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 the rumblings of romance between them really seem to take off or revive romance. They had actually been romantically involved before she married the king. When she's queen, the first romantic stirrings between them really seem to kick off on Monday, Thursday, which is the Thursday of Holy Week at the end of Lent. And that came right after Henry VIII very nearly died. He was very sick with fever during Lent. And I wonder, did it, I mean, I say in the book, I was like, look, we have to look at earlier queens like Adelise of Levine, who did marry a courtier after her husband, King Henry I, died. Catherine Parr would do exactly what, exactly this um, in 1547. You know, she was romantically involved with the Thomas before she became queen. And she married him before Henry VIII's body was barely cold. Who could blame her? So I think, yes, it is, it is very, very possible that she and perhaps even Thomas had an eye to the future. And they thought, we know Henry VIII lasted five more years, but she was gazing on someone who'd very nearly died. He was sick, um, had a lot of health problems. So yeah, I think it's very possible that she thought that, that, um, her and Thomas, um, would one day have a kind of happier ending. What I would also say is, and it's a, it's a difficult thing for a historian to try to articulate. So I just sort of put a couple of sentences in it, in the biography because I wanted, I wanted to have a sort of conversation with my readers. And, and I said, we have to remember that when you're in love, as she may very possibly have been, when you are in love, you're often not thinking and you take risks and you behave out of character certainly i look back in some of my past romances and think that was jaw dropping um what were you it's like you know i you know you see bump into them into the street and you're like what the hell was i thinking <laughs> and um you judge yourself um for your questionable uh taste no that's that, that's cruel but um what i mean is i'm sort of being flippant but i'm trying to say here through humor look she was young. He was young. They may have been in love. They may just have been infatuated. So there's an element of lunacy here, if that makes sense. There's an element of that lunacy that we all have. Everyone has, everyone has that infatuation at some point in their life where they kind of, um, you know, they sneak out at night and they, you know, they stay out past curfew or, you know, they stay up to watch the sunrise, anything like that. The different, the difference with her is the tragedy of her is all of this is normal behavior for someone in their twenties or late teens. The problem was she was married to someone who was quite prepared to enact the death penalty for them. And speaking of being married then to somebody that was quite prepared for something like that, why on earth, this actually comes from our friend, Adrian Dillard, friend of the show. Uh, why do you think that Lady Rochford helped Catherine knowing who she was married to? I, yeah, you know what? Like coming from Adrian, who's written the most sort of gorgeous novel about Lady Rochford's life, um, I'm aware I'm, I'm in the presence of someone who knows, you know, what she's talking about. Um, so if she disagrees, maybe this is a trap. <laughs> yeah, it's like, come on, Adrian. Um, <laughs> um, she's a good friend, actually. So <laughs> I, I, I trust it's a cheerful trap. A cheerful uh, trap. A cheerful trap. So yeah, she, um, 
I don't, that was something I really just have to leave. I just put out all the evidence I could in the biography because you can have a gut feeling, but sometimes the evidence just isn't strong enough for you to, to make the final step into saying this is why that happened. In which case you step back and you give the audience, excuse me, you give the evidence to your audience uh, and you let them make that decision. The, my gut feeling, Stephanie, if I'm honest, is People never believe they're going to be the one that the odds strike against. We always believe that we're going to be luckier than we are. It's, you know, why do people get into cars without their seatbelts on when all the evidence indicates that that is a stupid thing, that, that there's such a risk to that? Um, you know, why do people, why do people bungee jump? You know, what I mean by that is there's an element within humans that does not believe the, the catastrophic possibility will become their fate. They can see it happen all around them. They can see tragedy fall multiple times in the way I think Lady Rochford unquestionably had seen it happen at very close quarters. Um, and yet they can still take those risks. It's, it's one of the conundrums and paradoxes of, of humans. And sometimes I, I try to urge people, don't assume that these people live their lives by, you know, grandiloquent theories. And uh, of how humans and genders and classes should behave. There are elements in which that, that risk taking is eternal. And I think that that's part of the, the paradox of Lady Rochford is in many ways the paradox of all of us. Why on earth do we do things that put ourselves at risk? I think this flows nicely into Neam's question from Twitter, um, because another risk on the part of Henry VIII then marrying Anne Boleyn's cousin. Hmm. He was not deterred by this. Do you think that it could have bothered him or was it just not necessarily a huge deal because everybody was kind of related to everybody at that point anyway? So yeah. did it not cross his mind that they were? Well, it, it definitely crossed his mind legally because as they were preparing the, the annulment from Anne of Cleves, the um, Archiepiscopal Court at Canterbury was asked to provide a dispensation. And then there was also legislation in Parliament that permitted the king to marry uh, someone who had been, you know, who was within the first degree of affinity or the second degree of affinity to someone, you know, with whom he'd previously been in a similar union. So I think, you know, there was a legal exorcism of Anne Boleyn's ghost in the countdown to the marriage. So certainly that crossed his mind. But I think you're right that, you know, they weren't close, Anne and Catherine. There was a significant age gap, you know, of a, depend, you know if you accept the, the probable date for Catherine's and the latest possible for Anne's, there was a 15-year age gap between them. That It could have been more if you accept the earlier date for Anne Boleyn. And uh, Anne Boleyn's birth, sorry. Anne grew up away from her. Um, and Anne was, you know, Anne was, Catherine was not present at court when Anne was queen. And Anne was executed, you know, when Catherine was in her through mid, early to mid teens. And in that sense, so I don't think he would have been looking at them necessarily seeing someone who was both cousin and friend to Anne Boleyn. Uh, whether they had much in common, they, they certainly were very charming, both of them, and, and they had a good grasp of etiquette and manners, but, and, uh, you know, physically they may have vaguely resembled each other. We don't, there's not enough specific, um, comments in their appearance. There's not a lot of evidence that, that he, 
uh, ever makes that connection really obviously. And I think part of that is because they didn't grow up together. You know, Anne had, Anne had so many cousins. Bear in mind, her mother, Elizabeth, um, the Countess of Womond, came from a huge family of siblings. So Anne had a lot of cousins. But did it cross the mind of people like Anne Boleyn's uh, um, late, uh, sorry, Anne Boleyn's step-grandmother, the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, or the Countess of Bridgewater, who was Catherine's aunt and Anne's. Yes, I think it probably did. But but I, I think Henry took care of the legal matters, you know, to make sure his marriage to Catherine was legally binding. But I don't think there's there's no there's nothing that indicates that the ghost of Anne Boleyn hovered over the marriage too much until obviously the end. Uh, our last Twitter um, friend has asked. Would you argue that modern historians produced a feminist revival of Catherine's character, or is she maligned by history? And I'm sorry that I didn't even say your name because I don't want to butcher it. I think it is Mersna. I'm not quite sure, but thank you for the question. Great question. Um, Great question. Part of it's really interesting because if you look at the, yes, first of all, sorry, to answer the question in the first part, yes, there was a extraordinarily useful feminist revival of her. And I think actually, um, fairly convincing, if I'm honest, uh, particularly by a, a writer called Karen Lindsay, who in 1995 wrote a short book, but a very thought provoking book called Divorced, Beheaded, Survived, a Feminist Reinterpretation of the Wives of Henry VIII. And in it, she talks about Catherine and she says, you know, we have, you know, this was someone who had um, sexual urges and this is someone who liked, you know, who, who does not appear in her relationships, particularly not with Thomas Culpepper as this kind of um, uh, just passive recipient. And so she argued for Catherine having a degree of agency. She argued for Catherine having control, you know, kind of having control over her sexuality and being, you know, and painted that in a really positive picture. And it was really interesting that that, that, that to me, that was such, such a convincing portrait of her. I think this, the, the strength that Lindsay was keen to, to accredit to Catherine has probably receded a little. I think a lot of people are intent on on, on only focusing on, on the tragedy of her victimhood, which is, you know, part of the story. But it's interesting that I think we seem to prefer her. That's such a great question. Yes, I think we seem to prefer her as victim or vixen. I don't think we like to see the strength because some people think, or the kind of the agency and the control, which is so central to that feminist reevaluation of her. And, and by the way, I don't think these feminist historians were coming along determined to apply theory with no evidence. That's such an unfair, inaccurate version of what people like Karen Lindsay were doing. I think they genuinely made a point where they were like, you know, they used um, the truth of the evidence from the 1530s and 1540s to present her that way. I, I still think a lot of the feminists um, writing in the 1990s about Catherine, particularly Karen Lindsay, were excellent. Uh, so, yeah, I think they've done such a great thing for history. But it, that version of her did not catch on. I mean, that really was um, people fell back on either, um, you know, per her or she deserved it. And I thought that was so depressing because on the one hand, of course, per her, uh, how on earth can you look 
at that gradient of catastrophe which overtook Catherine's life and not feel the sheer horrifying injustice of, of that execution that was legally dubious. It's total nonsense to say that the law required it. Henry had to really push legislation through to get her executed. Even the House of Lords, the upper chamber of the English Parliament, were not convinced that what she had done merited the death penalty. So, of course, per her. But in the sense of um, that tragedy not overtaking the whole thing, I think we have we, we do still have her either traduced on one hand. I mean, you would be surprised at how many people write these heinous comments on Facebook when you mention her. She was an idiot. She deserved it. Um, actually, no, she was very elegant, uh, very charming, and she did make some mistakes, but she was 20 years old or 19 years old. And actually, I still think the fault lies more with, with the hus- the wounded husband who had to massage the laws to get her to die. So I think we're still caught in that dichotomy is what I would say. I think we are still caught between pawn and predator. And that is unfortunately, um, how we still portray her. So I hope it's why I stressed so much in the book. Um, yes, by the way, I, the, the book is not a whitewash of her at all. The book is not kind of painting over with broad paint strokes the mistakes that she made. And also the fact sometimes she could be quite unpleasant to her servants, which is not a nice trait in anyone. But there also were a lot of strengths. And I think particularly how she behaved in public as queen. She was very, very good at her job, if you want to call it that. So I hope the biography shows a more nuanced and rounded Catherine and gives her back some of the the strength and the joie de vivre that I really think she did possess. If that answer does not get people to read your book, I have no idea what could. That was great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I always like to kind of round things off with a question of my own. Sure. So I was just wondering what you think of the legend that Catherine said on the scaffold, I die a queen, but would rather die the wife of a Culpepper. Sure. Is there any truth in that or where did it even come from if it isn't true? It is 100. I can't say what it is 100%, but it comes from a bull. Um, it is definitely 100% uh, untrue. So it comes from a an anonymous account written kind of close to the time by a Spanish merchant living in London. But to give you an idea of just how wrong he gets it, he describes, he, he says Catherine made this sort of very romantic plea at the end. I'd die, a ki- I'd die the wife of a king, but I'd rather die the wife of Culpepper. Um, he claims that she was Henry VIII's fourth wife, that the interrogations were led by Thomas Cromwell, who by that point had been dead for two years, and that after Catherine was executed and made this romantic protestation of love to um, Thomas Culpepper, that Henry then went on to marry a German princess called Anne of Cleves. Like that's how wrong this account um, gets. Oh my goodness. So I always say, I'm like, just like, believe me, this is not what we would call a credible source. Um, The only eyewitness account that left um, a a sort of longer 
uh, account was written by a merchant called Otwell Johnson, who was an eyewitness, not just to Catherine's execution, but also to Lady Rochford's on the same day. And when I saw the letter, I was so excited. I actually used the posts, uh, the PS that he put uh, is the end, is the final um, few sentences of my book. It was so beautiful. Really frustratingly, Otwell Johnson does not go into detail about what she said, but he um, confirms that it was very Christian, that it was um, a godly end. And had Catherine said anything like what the Spanish merchant claimed she said, it would have been one of the most uh, commented upon and ridiculed speeches in the 16th century, it would not have rung as anything but grotesque to a 16th century audience. She would have, she would have sounded disrespectful of, you know, the God ordained hierarchy. And she would have left every single one of her relatives, many of whom at that stage, the Dodge Duchess of Norfolk, Lord William Howard, the Countess of Bridgewater, her aunt Margaret, were imprisoned and looking like they were going to be imprisoned for the rest of their lives. That didn't happen. But when Catherine was executed, it looked like a possibility. So for her to get up and say that would have been the height of, I mean, she if she had said that, she may as well have sharpened the axe for her relatives. So no, she she definitely did not say that. Well, thank you for clearing that up. That's great. That's very interesting. It's uh, it's like it's when I sat down to. Re- he also at one point kind of implies that um the devil made her commit adultery. That so it's 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 um, it's an interesting read. It sounds it. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Gareth. So we talked about your book a little bit. Is there anything else that you feel like you want to share with the listeners? No, where I- we can find you on social media, anything like that? Well, I just want to thank you, Stephanie, for your time, and also to to thank your listeners and contributors for their questions. I think, you know, like most historians, um, engaging with readers is such a privilege because, you know, we do this to stimulate a conversation. And I spent five years researching Young and Damned and Fair, and it was one of the, the labors of love of my life. So discussing it and discussing this fascinating tragic story i'm very grateful for anyone's time or interest in that uh you can find me on instagram um underscore gareth russell i'm also on uh, facebook gareth russell historian author where i post sort of on this day and about current projects i am currently working on a book called the palace by the river which is a history of hampton court three different people who lived there and thank you so much again gareth thank you very much and now a brief history It could be argued that gossiping gives humans the ability to spread information to their social networks. Some scholars even view gossip as a way to keep society in check, morally speaking, as it offers teachable moments and provides examples of what's socially acceptable by way of people's expression of their opinions with their inner circles. This potential knowledge of why, even hundreds of years later, we are still captivated by the drama and intrigue surrounding Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester's love life, makes this the perfect fragment of his extraordinary life to focus on today. There are plenty of events and episodes surrounding this exceptional character in history, but for the sake of the interesting gossip, let's discuss his relationships with the women in his life. 
the loves, the lust, and everything in between. Let's begin with Amy Robsart. Born in 1532 to Sir John Robsart and Elizabeth Appleyard, Amy was the couple's only child, but she was the youngest of five siblings. So how did they meet? On their way to subdue Ket's Rebellion, a 1549 revolt in Norfolk, John Dudley, then Earl of Warwick, and his sons Robert, John, and Ambrose stopped a camp on the grounds of Sir John Robsart. It was here that Robert Dudley met Amy Robsart, whom it is believed took great interest in Dudley. Their marriage the following year was considered a love match, with William Cecil later saying that the marriage had begun with passion and ended in mourning. It was also a beneficial marriage to Warwick, as it strengthened his position in Norfolk, a country in which he really had little influence at the time. Now, Warwick was an ambitious man, likely one of the men behind the destruction of the Seymour brothers. He also arranged to have a second son, Guilford Dudley, in a marriage with the nine-day queen, Lady Jane Grey. Now, that story is for another time, but it's important to note that once Mary I inherited the throne... Robert Dudley, along with his father and brothers, were imprisoned in the Tower of London, attainted, and sentenced to death. John Dudley, Robert's father, was ultimately beheaded. Amy Robsart stayed in London during her husband's imprisonment and was permitted visits with him at the Tower. Robert Dudley was eventually released in 1554. The couple did not have much money in their early years, but upon the death of Mary I, Dudley was made master of horse upon the accession to the throne of Elizabeth I. Although their fortune increased, Dudley had little time for his wife, Amy. He sent money and jewels to her, but his time was mostly spent busy at court with Elizabeth. And as you'll learn later, Elizabeth did not welcome Amy to join. Dudley was a favorite of the Queen's, and her jealous nature did not allow potential rivals, regardless of who they were married to. Amy moved back to London, into Cumna Place, where she had a comfortable life without her beloved husband, yet she remained his faithful wife. In September 1560, Amy suggested her servants attend the fair while she stayed home and later was found dead at the bottom of a stairwell. Rumors and theories about how she died have continued to circulate since the 16th century. Was it at the hands of her husband, by the orders of the queen, Was it a suicide due to feelings of depression and rejection because of an adulterous husband? This mystery caused a scandal that would follow Robert Dudley's name for centuries to come. When it comes to Robert Dudley's relationships, we know none better than his relationship with Elizabeth I. In his own words to the French ambassador in 1566, Robert stated that he had known Elizabeth since her eighth year, and that he knew her better than any man on earth. And since that time, she has declared she will not marry. If Elizabeth was indeed eight, that means that she and Dudley met in 1541. So for a little perspective, at the time, Henry VIII was married to Catherine Howard, which might explain the statements that allegedly Elizabeth chose not to marry after her stepmother was executed. Both Elizabeth and Dudley were imprisoned in the Tower of London at the same time during the reign of her sister, Queen Mary. Robert, for his part in aiding and placing Jane Grey on the throne, and Elizabeth, for her suspected part in Wyatt's Rebellion. 
Now, as stated previously, upon becoming Queen Regnant of England, Elizabeth appointed Robert as her Master of Horse, a prestigious position which would require him to regularly attend her. How convenient. A year later, his bedchamber was put next to hers. And as previously mentioned, Elizabeth's territorial and jealous nature led her to prohibit Dudley's wife, Amy, from being welcome at court, nor was he permitted to go home to her with any regularity. Although her death in 1560 allegedly came as a traumatic surprise to him, his persistence in wooing Elizabeth and his resolute decision to make her his next wife was not covert, to say the least. In 1564, Elizabeth suggested Dudley potentially marry her rival, Mary Queen of Scots, to secure her loyalty to England. She even promised that the three of them would live together at court, most likely so she wouldn't lose her sweet Robin to someone else. In a 1564 visit to court, Scottish ambassador Sir James Melville saw that Elizabeth kept Dudley's letters and a portrait of him in her nightstand and wanted to take the portrait to show Mary. If they were going to be married, she should see what he looks like. He suggested Elizabeth give up the portrait, patronizingly telling her that she already, quote, had the original. As we know, this plan did not come to fruition as Mary Queen of Scots ultimately married Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley. In the early 1570s, Robert Dudley began a relationship with Douglas Howard, eldest daughter of William Howard, first Baron Howard of Effingham, and goddaughter of Margaret Douglas, Countess of Lennox. Douglas came to court shortly after Elizabeth ascended the throne and married John Sheffield, second Baron Sheffield. Her affair with Robert Dudley began not long after her husband's death and resulted in a fair amount of sibling rivalry as Howard's sister Frances, who later married the widower of Catherine Gray, had set her eyes on Dudley as well. Dudley claimed to have felt genuine affection for her, but in a letter he wrote in the early 1570s, he said that he had long liked and loved her but could not marry as he would lose the queen's favor. Nevertheless, the relationship between Baroness Sheffield and Dudley produced one illegitimate heir, also named Robert, born in 1574. Dudley recognized this son as his and provided his care and education. It's still unclear just how long the affair was carried out. As we know, he married Latisse Knowles four years after his son with Douglas Howard was born. However, years later... She claimed that the two were married in secret, and even though she was actually married to her second husband while Robert was still alive. Robert definitely had a way with the ladies, and reminds me of the comparison between Thomas Seymour and Robert Dudley, that Elizabeth had a type, and women loved them. And then, in yet another effort to get Elizabeth's consent to marriage, Dudley brought the queen to Kenilworth Castle in 1575, where he threw a 19-day lavish party in her honor and showered her with extravagant gifts. This was presumably the way to her heart, yet she still declined. Elizabeth maintained her position as the Virgin Queen, who steadfastly vowed never to marry, yet her beloved favorite was endlessly by her side. And of course, the most scandalous of all relationships, and they were all scandalous, by the way, we come to Latisse Knowles. 
As a granddaughter of Mary Boleyn, Latisse Knowles was a first cousin, once removed, of Elizabeth I. She was known to many as one of the best-looking ladies of the court. Latisse was firstly married to Walter Devereux, Earl of Essex, a staunch adversary of Robert Dudley. When he died in 1576, many rumors began to circulate that he had poisoned him, but with no evidence to support the allegations. In 1577, Devereux's widow spent time at Kenilworth. She was most likely also there during the lavish festival he put on to woo Elizabeth in 1575. She initially began a platonic relationship with Robert Dudley that eventually turned into a love affair. They courted in secret and married in 1578 with only a few witnesses present. Latisse was said to have worn a loose-fitting dress at her wedding, which people took to potentially mean that she was hiding a pregnant belly. But there's no further evidence to support this speculation. By this time, her husband was already a steady favorite with the queen, and although she had no intentions of marrying him herself, she was not about to let him go to another woman without a fight. Both were banished, and although Dudley was eventually pardoned, Latisse was never welcomed back. However, her pride and satisfaction in her passionate relationship with her husband left her remorseless, even despite having been estranged from her cousin in court for the rest of Elizabeth's days. When Elizabeth eventually forgave Dudley, he was once again by her side as England won its victory over the Spanish Armada in 1588. Shortly thereafter, Dudley penned a letter to Elizabeth, ending with, I humbly kiss your foot, by your majesty's most faithful and obedient servant. This was the last communication between the two. It would be fair to say that Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, was at the very least an amorist who had his share of impressive relationships over the years. Each one of them led to court gossip and intrigue in their own way. But none could ever be overshadowed by his did-they-or-didn't-they relationship with the queen herself. When Dudley died, Elizabeth locked herself away from all of court, holding dear to her heart his final message to her, which, for the rest of her life, she kept tucked away with the inscription, His Last Letter. And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. You can find my show notes from this episode and how to become a patron at TudorsDynastyPodcast.com. Don't want to miss an episode? Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Patreon, Podbean, or anywhere you can find podcasts. Thanks for checking out the Tudors Dynasty Podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudors Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.